You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Our last sermon in John a couple of weeks ago, we crept a little bit into John chapter 16, um, but only down into verse 4. And it's because it tied in so much with John chapter 15 and how that chapter wraps up. And so it's at the end of John chapter 15 where Jesus is talking about the coming hatred of the world towards those that follow Jesus and how to handle that hatred. Um, And so he starts to inform them of this looming hatred that's coming, um, that as, as we as his followers seek to love and obey and experience joy that comes from that, uh, the world's going to respond in hatred towards us. And it's going to be extreme at times. And it's in chapter 16 where he specifically says, I'm telling you this because I want you to know that it's coming. And when it comes, I don't want you to fall away. Instead, I want you to believe further in the things that I've been telling you. And so the fact that he predicts this, prophesies this, and when the disciples experience it, we see them finding joy versus falling away. We saw that in the book of Acts, where as they're being persecuted for their faith, being told to stop, they leave rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer uh, just like their Savior suffered, right? And so it's, um, it's something that we looked at and we said that we should expect to suffer Uh, We expect persecution because it makes sense, because we are identifying ourselves with Jesus, who himself was persecuted. We've been chosen out of the world to live differently than the world. So that that breeds some friction because we're essentially saying that the way the world lives is wrong, and so the world reacts to that. Um, Because Jesus experienced persecution, we're not exempt because we're no better than Jesus. We're not greater than Jesus. Um, The world starts to feel some of that guilt in our message, and, and therefore responds with that hatred towards us. And ultimately, it's a fulfillment of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament passages promising that we will experience uh, this type of treatment. Jesus tells us that even though it comes, we continue to push forward with the Great Commission, that we don't stop talking about Jesus. Instead, we keep talking about Jesus, that the Helper comes at the end of chapter 15, verse 26, uh, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And so the Holy Spirit empowers us to keep sharing in spite of persecution. And then, as we said, we're to endure it versus falling away because of it. And so uh, challenge you application-wise a couple weeks ago that you should look at your life and see if there's any um, any types of uh, persecution you're experiencing now, and, and, we, and we tried to define persecution not in the extreme standpoint, but really any type of negative uh, kickback that we get for trying to live out our obedience to our faith, right? And so as we experience that type of persecution, are we responding with joy and endurance appropriately? Are we conforming in any way to the things of this world so that we don't experience persecution, that we need to instead be transformed and challenged you to make sure that you have adequate knowledge of what the Bible says about persecution. Uh, Because Jesus says, I want you to recall and remember the things that I've shared with you so that when you experience it, you don't fall away, right? And so that brings us uh, into the the meat of John chapter 16 in verse 5. And he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? 
But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Our summary sentence for today. Jesus reminds us that when sorrow comes, there is always something advantageous happening in the midst of it, which encourages us to look for how Jesus is at work and trust that he will be effective because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds us that when sorrow comes, there is always something advantageous happening in the midst of it, which encourages us to look for how Jesus is at work and trust that he will be effective because of the Holy Spirit. For our kids, even when bad things happen, Jesus is always doing something good through the Holy Spirit. So as this news is, is, is being processed by the disciples, Jesus says, I can tell sorrows entering into your heart. I can tell that we've, we've got anxiety that he's talked about. We've talked about fear that they're experiencing. Remember, he's talked about betrayal, denial, hatred, persecution, right? So he's just kind of laying it all out there. I mean, it's, it's, it's every reason that you would say uh, someone should carefully consider should you follow Jesus or not. He's not hiding any of the bad that may come uh, as a result of this, right? And so all this is kind of being dumped on him here. And, and on top of that, he's also saying, I'm about to leave you, right? Like I'm about to go away and you can't go where I'm going right now. And so they're processing all of this. And Jesus says, I, I can tell that there's sorrow in your heart. But this is when he comes in with this life-giving message of, it, it's advantageous what I'm telling you is going to happen, right? It's to your advantage that all of this is about to play out the way that it is. And he assures us of these advantages as he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit will accomplish and what the Holy Spirit's going to do. And so he gives us a taste of how this will be advantageous for them, right? Um, which, which I think is helpful for us to think through when we talk about um, God's always working good in the midst of our circumstances, that he's made those promises, that, that it's more than just good, it's an advantage that comes out of this situation for us. So as, as, as God is working and moving in our circumstances, brings us through trials and difficulties, what we've described is that pruning process, right? Backing up, backing up a little bit. When, when he talked about uh, him being the true vine and us being the branches and us being called to bear fruit and how he prunes those branches, right? Cuts away those branches. Why? So that they can bear more fruit. It's advantageous for the branch to go through that pruning process. Doesn't feel good at the time, isn't desirable at the time, but you begin to see more fruit coming forth as a result of it. And so Jesus is saying, look, <clears throat> I get it. This is, this is not what you were hoping to hear after celebrating the Passover, 
right? Like this isn't, this isn't the, the small talk that maybe you were hoping we would have in the midst of enjoying a great supper together. He says, I'm sharing a lot of bad stuff with you right now, or at least that's how you're perceiving it, right? This bad news that's coming your way. He says, I really need you to, to, to think bigger than yourself right now, and I need you to see that this is an advantage, what I'm telling you, right? And we know that it's not just the Holy Spirit that's an advantage. Even the persecution's an advantage, right? Because he's going to go on to talk about, um, I think it's even in the book of Acts, where the idea here is that the persecution is going to force the gospel to spread out, right? That if they were seeing such positivity around their gospel work, apostles would have been inclined to stay right where they were, right? Remember, we talked about how Jesus had set an example in his ministry that when things started going good, he would, he would seemingly move away, right? And it's like, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you doing this kind of thing? Jesus is laying a pattern out that, hey, the gospel's got to go forth. And for the disciples, for the apostles, it's persecution's going to have to play a role in that. It's going to have to naturally force you to spread out a little bit, right? So that the gospel can continue to go forth to the ends of the earth. And so there's a lot of advantages, even in this negative um, information that he's providing to them, right? Like everything's being filtered to them through this idea that this is bad. This is not what we want. This is not desirable, Jesus kind of comes in and says, no, it's actually, it's actually an advantage for you. It's actually an advantage for you, right? So for our kids, bad things happen, but God's always doing something good through the Holy Spirit um, is how he accomplishes that good, all right? Let's jump right in <coughs> to our text and see how this unfolds, um, and we can unpack our summary sentence today, all right? Number one, ask the right questions when sorrow comes, Ask the right questions when sorrow comes. For our kids, look for good things Jesus is doing even when bad things happen. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. All right? When sorrow comes our way, things that would cause us to feel sorrowful, Jesus is telling us to ask the right questions in the midst of that sorrow. Um, Now, it's not that the disciples haven't asked this question at all, right? Because um, Peter actually asked back in chapter 13, verse 36, Jesus, where are you going? Now, that was a little while ago, so it could be that Jesus is saying, none of you are asking right now, because remember in 1431, there was a, a location change for them. So, That conversation had finished. They had moved into a different location. Now they've picked up the conversation again. So Jesus is saying, right now, none of you are asking this. But I also probably think he means you're not asking it in the right way. Right? We've all, those of us with kids have all experienced, us as dads especially, when mom has to leave the house to go somewhere and we try to hide that from the fact that that our, we're trying to hide that from from the kids, right? Because as dads, we're loved by our kids, but sometimes not as much in the moment as, as mom is. And so for us, like when, when Lauren's got to go to the store, um, this is particularly true for Mally right now. Like we try to hide the fact, hey, Lauren, just get out of the house. She'll be fine. But it's the act of seeing you leave that causes a lot of stress, right? And so immediately Mally goes into this questioning of, where's mommy going? Where's mommy going, right? But she's not really asking what's mommy doing. It's more about, I, I already miss her. I want her back with me right now. Like it's very inward focused, 
right? And that's what I think Peter's even asking back in chapter 13. It's more, where are you going and when are you coming back? Because we need you right here. Versus, man, I wonder where mom's going. Like, mom wouldn't leave unless there was a good reason to leave. Please tell me and describe to me where mom's going, right? Because it's, it's, it must be good for her to leave, right? Mally's never asked that question with that type of mindset, right? She's not, she's not really that interested in where Lauren is going. It's more about when can I have her back for me, right? I think what Jesus is saying here, he says, I'm telling you all this stuff, and not once have you stopped to say, what's the, what's the reason behind this, right? Like, where are you going? Why would that be good? And, and, and how can you help us to see that it's good? I think that's really what he's, he's wanting them to ask here. He's like, man, I'm giving you like all this stuff, sorrow starting to set into your heart, and not once have you said, man, how's this good for us? Like, what is it that you're going to be doing? Where is it that you are going? And that's typically true for us when sorrow sets into our life and our circumstances, right? Something presses in on us, whether it's family situation, health situation, job situation, whatever it may be, we're typically more inclined to experience the sorrow, settle into the sorrow, allow anxiety and fear to maybe couple in there as well. We're very quick to wonder, when is Jesus going to come and fix this, right? But we're less inclined to think, what's Jesus doing in the midst of this? And how could this potentially be an advantage to me to be going through this? That, that, that's, that requires an, an element of supernatural thinking, which I think is only possible through the Holy Spirit, right? And I think Jesus even alludes to the fact that when the Holy Spirit comes, there are things that you're going to be able to do and process um, and, and believe that without him, you're not going to progress into that, right? The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth is what Jesus says. So we can be thankful this morning that what I'm describing is possible if you're a believer because the Holy Spirit does live inside of you, that you can actually be in a state as Paul talks about. I have learned to be content. I've learned to be satisfied whether I have plenty or whether I'm in need, right? In any and all circumstances, he had learned to experience contentment in in whatever Christ was doing in the midst of his life. We're so inclined to immediately think inwardly about our circumstances and how we feel about our circumstances, how to alleviate these circumstances, how to change them, fix them, make it go back to the way it was before type of a thinking. It's so hard for us to get into the condition of thinking, what's God doing here? Like, like how is this an advantage to me that he would be taking me through this? Not just how's he going to turn this into something good, but how is this actually advantageous for me that he is taking me through this? That's the question that I think Jesus is saying. I want you to be asking that. I realize that it's hard. I realize that it's sorrowful. And it's why I titled our message today, Sorrowful Advantages, because I don't know that we can alleviate the sorrowful feelings. That's, That's part of what it means to be human, right? But it's in the midst of sorrow, seeing that advantage exists, seeing that advantage is at work by Christ in his bigger plan, and that he's using the Holy Spirit to accomplish that, right? Um, Our typical reaction is to focus inwardly on how our circumstances affect us. The sorrow of Jesus leaving, the coming hatred has consumed their thoughts. They're incapable of thinking beyond the immediate And these feelings of sorrow are natural, but Jesus is not content 
for them to remain in this natural response. All right? The truth that I want us to see here is that what we need to focus on in our sorrow is what Jesus is seeking to do. What we need to focus on in our sorrow is what Jesus is seeking to do. Now, this goes back to what we said even in the purpose of us studying this gospel, right? That we typically think of John being written for the unbeliever because he says, the reason that I've written is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. We've said that that, that's that's not just for the unbeliever, that's for the believer too, right? That, That John has written in such a way that we will close the gap that exists so oftentimes in our life where we experience things and then eventually we get around to believing Jesus, right? And a lot of times we'll go through this, this season where we're, where we're frustrated, angry, anxious, discouraged, depressed even maybe, and then eventually we get around to recalculating our thoughts and saying, you know what, like I need to believe Jesus in this, right? Like he's good, he's made promises, he's in control, and we finally get back around to the, the proper biblical way of thinking. But sometimes we have this season where we're not thinking that way, right? And so I told you that in going through this gospel, what we want to see is that gap close, right? It might be unfair to think in this life, in the midst of our imperfections that still exist until Jesus comes back, that we'll ever be the type of people that every time something happens in our life, we're saying, oh, I'm always content, I'm always content, I'm always content. Right? I don't know that Paul actually meant I never have even like little bitty moments before I reach contentment where I'm, where I'm not thinking like, what's God doing here? Or what, what's happening? Or you know, lacking some faith and trust. What we're saying though is that we, as, as we grow in our faith, as we're sanctified, that gap should be closing. Right? That time period should be lessening where we're, we're, we're more and more quickly turning to the proper thinking that we're more and more quickly properly trusting that Jesus is in control and he's working good. And not just trying to find some good, but he's actually carrying us through something in an advantageous way, right? So the whole gospel we've been saying, let's lessen that time. Jesus is saying here, look, sorrowful things are being communicated to you. I want you to be asking the right questions. What's the bigger purpose here? What, what is Jesus doing in a way that makes this an advantage for us? So that first thing in your notes there, our typical reaction is to focus inwardly on how our circumstances affect us. We may even feel pity for ourselves for what it is that we're experiencing. We compare ourselves to other people and their circumstances. We say, why am I going through this and, and, and why are they not? And, and, and then sometimes it sets into an even more unhealthy way of thinking in, in, in that we might say, that person deserves to be going through this, not me right? Like if, if anybody should be going through what I'm going through, it's that person and not me. And, and we're probably champions at listing off the reasons why we shouldn't be going through it. What Jesus is saying here, he's like, look, you're about to go through some stuff and it's an advantage to you that all of this happens. Like the, the big crux of the matter is that I'm about to leave you. And, and, and that's going to result in this this hatred and, and, and these things that are going to come. He says, that's an advantage to you because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit doesn't come. If I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And then boom, he begins to lay out, this is what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes. This is why it's an advantage to you. All right, number two, our more immediate reaction needs to be how our circumstances fit within Jesus's overall plan. Our more immediate reaction needs to be asking that question, how do our circumstances fit 
within Jesus's overall plan. And I think it'll be hard for us to see the advantages and to see the good in our circumstances if we aren't asking the right questions, right? We may go through the circumstance and God may work good, but remember we've talked about the fact that God's promised to do these things. He hasn't always promised that we will be observant enough to see him, right? That we could potentially miss his glory being put on display because we're not having the right perspective. So our more immediate reaction needs to be asking that appropriate question of how does this fit within Jesus's overall plan? And thinking about the promise to prune us, right? That he's promised to prune us. He's promised to cut things away from us so that we can bear more fruit. Not so that we can be more comfortable, not so that we can enjoy this life more, right? So that we can bear more fruit, which may not be fully realized even until the life to come in the future with him. Ask the right questions when sorrow comes. What we need to focus on in our sorrow is what Jesus is seeking to do. So he challenges them. He says, look, what I'm saying, it's filling your heart with sorrow right now. And I'm concerned because none of you is asking me, where are you going? Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Number two, we want to anticipate possible advantages when sorrow comes. Anticipate possible advantages when sorrow comes. For our kids, the Holy Spirit can help us see the good things when bad things are happening. Anticipate the possible advantages when sorrow comes. For our kids, the Holy Spirit can help us see the good things when bad things are happening. So the truth here in this section is that what causes sorrow in our life is also creating an advantage in our life as well. What causes sorrow in our life is also creating an advantage in our life as well. And we know that not just from this passage, but from other passages too, right? Where, where Jesus promises that uh, the trials and the difficulties produce endurance and patience and perseverance within us right? That, that he's constantly turning our hearts more and more to him. He's constantly seeking to conform us to the image of his son, right? So we know, not just beyond this passage, where Jesus is specifically talking about a circumstance and an advantage of the Holy Spirit coming, I think we can take that principle and really apply it to all of our circumstances, knowing that there is some type of advantage in the midst of those that God is working as well, because he's promised to work good. And we've talked before, he's not a reactionary God, right? He doesn't just sit back and say, okay, Satan, do what you want to do, and then I'll work some magic and turn it into good things, right? He's a God who proactively, proactively uses the things that are in this world, uses Satan's uh, desires, right? Uses all that stuff for the good that he's always wanted to accomplish. He's a, he's a proactive God, not a reactive God right? So we can anticipate these advantages when sorrow comes because they are going to be there as part of his plan. Number one here, by leaving, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to dwell with us constantly. 
by leaving, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to dwell with us constantly. This is where he says the advantage here is that if, if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit or the Helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. Now, this is where I'm always hesitant to talk about limitations of Jesus. So I'm just going to say it real quick, and then we'll just move on. Okay? Um, but, but in some ways, Jesus had limited his presence to a physical location by taking on this, this physical human body, right? I say that carefully, though, because he's having conversations with Nathaniel, right? And Nathaniel comes to him, and he's like, I saw you under that tree, right? And it's like, well, how did he see him? Like, so, so it's not that Jesus has completely removed his omniscience and his omnipresence because he's, he's fully aware of what's happening, when, even when he's not physically there, right? But, but in some ways, he's, he's, he's describing this, this fact that, you know, I've taken on a physical human body, and, and I've taught you guys, I think Scripture's very clear, that's, that's never changing moving forward, right? We, we can go to the, the Greek words in, in Philippians chapter 2, but what it, what it teaches there is that Jesus was not always human before that first Christmas, right? He was not always human. He was always God and will always be God. He was not always human, but he will always be human moving forward, right? Like he is the ultimate uh, example. He is the first fruit of what redeemed glorified humanity looks like, right? So he comes and lives a perfect life, dies in our place, is treated as though he is the, the, the sins of the world have been placed upon him, right? God treats him that way, pours out wrath upon him. Then he resurrects because that sacrifice has been accepted. He's been gifted a glorified body that he will indwell for all eternity, right? So in some ways, there's, there's some limitedness to his presence because he's willfully taken on this human body. And so he is saying that when I leave, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you as you go to the ends of the earth. I think that's probably what he even means when Jesus gives them that great commission and says, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Through the Holy Spirit, he is with us always to the ends of the earth, right? So it's an advantage because when the Holy Spirit comes, he dwells with us constantly. I mean, imagine, imagine how difficult it would be if Jesus was here, and I don't know how this works for eternity because I've, I've kind of thought about this too, but just imagine like if, if you were here and Jesus was ruling and reigning in Jerusalem, and you're just like, man, I wish, I wish we could be in Jerusalem today with Jesus. That's so far away. It's so expensive to get there, right? Like there, there's some downside, some negative to one versus the other, right? Now we've got Jesus ruling and reigning in heaven, which is far better than him ruling and reigning in Jerusalem, right? Um, but in addition to that, we've been gifted the Holy Spirit who, who dwells with us constantly, Right, so that's part of the advantage. Number two, by coming, the Holy Spirit empowers us to experience spiritual effectiveness. And I'm using the word effective and ineffective a lot in this, and I'm a grammar nerd, and I always try to get it right. I do not know. I've never been able to figure out when you use the E and the A. So I kind of go back and forth in the notes here, so I'm sorry if those of you that do understand when you use the difference. It drives you crazy. It drives me crazy not knowing which one it is, right? I don't, I don't know. But by coming, the Holy Spirit empowers us to experience 
this spiritual effectiveness or effectiveness, right? That Jesus is calling them to be certain types of people, to do certain things. And when the, when the Holy Spirit comes, we really see that take off. We really see that take off. Um, Jesus describes this in a couple, in, or at least three different ways in, in how we're going to see effectiveness. What we've talked about previously when we talked about Pentecost and what comes in, in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit's presence brings this new covenant power that was promised in the Old Testament that allows for a, a supernatural level of obedience that really spills out into the lives of others, right? We, we talked about this when we went through uh, some of our covenant theology discussion that Old Testament, you had, you had saints that were, that were living in obedience, but you don't see a lot of their lives spilling over into the lives of others, right? You don't see Israel really capturing its role of being a light to the nations. But then when the, when the, when the Pentecost day happens and, and the Holy Spirit comes, you really start to see immediately in Acts chapter 2, the way that the people were living was attracting other people to come and be a part of it, like, instantaneously, right? People start to see this radical change, this radical love for each other that, that starts to move away from selfishness, right? And people are like, I want to be a part of that community. I want to be a part of what's happening in that group of people. And so his, his presence in our life brings this new covenant power that, that allows our obedience to spill over into the lives of others. And um, Jesus describes three different ways that the Holy Spirit comes to work and move in our words and our actions, right? And he says that um, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. All right, what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, through our words and actions, he brings about conviction regarding sin. Now, notice what he says about sin. He says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now, we've talked before that the root cause of any sin in our life is, is really tied to a lack of belief, right? And so Jesus kind of spearheads that right here and says, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to convict the world of sin specifically in the area of their unbelief in me, because that's the root cause of all the sinful attitudes and actions that come about in our life. So the Holy Spirit's going to, to come in and start to fix a problem that the world has, and that's a lack of belief in Jesus. What he's, what he's assuring them here is, is that those in op opposition to Christ won't remain that way fully. Remember, we said by the time Jesus dies, I mean, there, there's maybe 500 or less that are actually bought into what he's doing, that, that are faithfully following him. So many have come, heard the message, and left because they're offended at his talks about sin and his talks about righteousness and his talks about judgment, right? And so they've, they've left him. And now there's a small pool of people that are left following him. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, the world's gonna hate you and it's gonna be difficult and I'm gonna leave and not even be here, um, but I'm gonna send somebody to help you. And the Holy Spirit's gonna come and convict the world of sin. And there is going to be true conviction. And so there's, a, there's an assurance and a promise here that as the disciples start to share the gospel, it will be effective in the lives of some. That, that not everybody's going to remain in opposition to Christ. We know from John 3, 19 through 20, that Jesus exposes sin as the light of the world, 
right? And those in darkness hate the light because they love their sin, is what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit brings this element where Jesus is exposing the sin and the Holy Spirit grasps the heart of that individual and convicts them of it, right? It's what we talk about when we talk about even the idea of regeneration, right? This, this supernatural thing that happens inside of us before we really can even be saved. It's the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, opening our eyes to Jesus so that in the midst of that presentation of the gospel, our hearts are now bent towards Jesus versus away from him because we're born into sin. Like we're born rebels and, and, and the Holy Spirit has to fix that condition before we can even profess faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. The Holy Spirit's gonna come and convict the world of sin. He's gonna attack the unbelief that is the root of all sin. And those that are in opposition to Christ don't have to remain that way. Now, does he also convict our sin as believers once we are saved? Absolutely. I think the, the key thing that he's hitting here is that the unbelievers are gonna be convicted of sin and brought to salvation. But it's certainly true that, that the Holy Spirit also convicts you and I of sin as well, ongoingly as we're sanctified. I mean, there's great hope here for those of us that, that have loved ones who aren't believers, that we've been praying for years on end for their salvation. And they're, they're still in opposition to God, right? The hope for us that the Holy Spirit is here on this earth and he does bring about conviction of sin, right? And he can rescue people from darkness. And, and it's not just... It's not about us bringing this articulate, great, fantastic message on a given day that somebody's going to get saved because of it, right? It's because the Holy Spirit's going to draw them and bring about conviction. It's going to use our clunky, messed up presentation of the gospel to open somebody's eyes one day and save them for eternity, right? Through our words and actions, because sometimes it's our actions that, that, that really start to convict somebody, but through our words and our actions, the Holy Spirit brings about conviction regarding sin because he's empowering our words, he's empowering our actions. But secondly, through our words and actions, he brings about conviction regarding righteousness too. I, I think that's in a couple of ways. One, the Holy Spirit exposes self-righteousness that so oftentimes an unbeliever will cling to and hold to as their, their ticket into glory, their ticket into a good standing with God, right? I'm a good person, right? And I really don't need any other standard besides the fact that I can see other people that are worse than me. Right, And so this plagued the people at that time. It plagues people today. As Jesus shared the gospel, people were plagued by this. As we share the gospel, people are plagued by this. That they're bought into the fact that they're good enough or not bad enough to warrant God's wrath. Aaron Rodgers is a famous NFL quarterback. And I don't know all the details about him and his family and why they're estranged, but I was reading some articles this week about the fact that his family is, is very religious and, and, and I don't know if they're solid or not. Um, but I know some of his comments are, hey, I've had to leave. I've had to leave religion because I just don't believe that there's, there's any way possible that God can, can be angry towards people because of their sin. It, it just doesn't mesh with what I think God should be, right? And so uh, apparently there's some estrangement there between him and his family because he now disagrees with, with what he was raised to believe, right? But that's where a lot of people are. They don't see how God could ever punish the people that are around them, because when they look at them, they say, you know what, they're basically good people, right? And so the Holy Spirit, not only does he have to bring about conviction in, in the life of somebody about their sin, he also has to convict them about their own righteousness, because 
you can maybe convince somebody that there's some sin in their life, but the natural man's going to respond to that and say, but look at all this other stuff. Look at all this other stuff. Or look at this other person's sin, right? Like, yes, I've got some problems, but that person's got a lot more problems. And I've got a lot of things that atone for my problems, right? So the Holy Spirit comes to, to convict of sin and to convict of righteousness, to help us see that our self-righteousness needs to be exposed, that it's inadequate, that Jesus' righteousness is the only righteousness that, that can possibly save us. But then I think there's also this piece where true righteousness can be understood um, in the life of a human being post-salvation. So I think the Holy Spirit even brings about an awareness in an unbeliever's life as he sees righteousness being lived out in a true believer's life, right? This is where uh, an unbeliever would see our good works and glorify God in heaven, right? Because the self-righteousness piece is being cleansed out. And we are living now in obedience, bearing fruit the way that we're supposed to, not to earn God's favor, not to earn God's favor, but in response to the fact that we've already received God's favor. So conviction about sin, conviction about righteousness, conviction about judgment, The Holy Spirit brings an awareness to people on this planet about the fallenness and the destiny of this world, right? There starts to be a realization in the life of an unbeliever that if I continue down this path of sin and self-righteousness, it will lead to judgment. That as much as I may be enjoying the things of this world, this world is crumbling and has a destiny of judgment and destruction that's coming. And I got to get off this, I got to get off this track. I got to get off this road. Right, and so the Holy Spirit brings that awareness that while everything looks great maybe in your life right now, right? You might be a Zacchaeus who says, I've got all the money in the world. I've got everything that I need. Why, why would I need Jesus? The Holy Spirit comes into the Zacchaeus' heart and says, man, this, this is, this is going to be a well that will never satisfy. This well will run out. This well will be judged, right? And so these, these elements of sin, righteousness, and judgment, these are key elements that are to be present really in every gospel presentation that we give. Right? When we, and I think, that's why he, I think that's why Jesus draws upon these three points. Because as we share the gospel with others, we're going to have to talk about sin. We're going to have to talk about righteousness, both the individual's perceived righteousness and the righteousness of Christ, and the urgency of doing something with that message. Right? That it's not optional. That judgment is looming judgment of God's wrath, but even a judgment of vindication that comes for believers, right? And so those three elements are so important as we share with others and to know that the Holy Spirit is empowering the effectiveness of that message, that we can share and we can talk about sin and righteousness and judgment. And while there's always this great fear of offending somebody, when we press in on those topics, Jesus says, I've given you the Holy Spirit and he will bring about the right responses to those topics. Ask the right questions when sorrow comes. Anticipate possible advantages when sorrow comes. We've been blessed to see the advantage of Jesus leaving. The advantage of Jesus leaving is that the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit empowers this type of environment. There's advantages in whatever sorrows come your way too. And and it may not always be clearly revealed to you like it is in this passage for Jesus leaving and the Holy Spirit coming. But we can look for them, we can anticipate them and know that there's advantages there. Otherwise, God wouldn't be carrying us through it. Last thing, number three. Accept the need for delayed answers when sorrow comes. 
accept the need for delayed answers when sorrow comes. What we see in this passage is some strategy on Jesus' part as to when he reveals certain information. Jesus knows when and how much information his disciples need at the appropriate times. He starts this whole section that we've looked at today. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Right? So, so he says, hey, I've known this all along. Right? Like this, isn't, like this isn't a new plan. I've been fully aware of this plan for a long time. You don't need to know about it right now because I've been with you. Right? There's some strategy on Jesus' part. Why stress you out? Right? Why create this anxiety and this fear and this sorrow too early? It's not needed. Right? So he says, look, I've had these plans in place for a long time. Not, I'm not reacting to anything. I've had this stuff in place. But, but, I, but because I was with you, you didn't need to know this information. He goes on to say where we're at now in working through this in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. There's some strategy here on Jesus' part. For our kids, we can understand truth from God because the Holy Spirit helps us. The truth here is that what we are informed about is strategic based on what we are capable of handling. What we are informed about is strategic based on what we are capable of handling. Jesus informs them about some things, but then he chooses not to inform them about some other things that he could have informed them about. And he goes on to say that you will be informed about them later. So there's some things that that these individuals will write that will be included in our scriptures that they're not informed about yet. I mean, think about John. John's the perfect example of how this plays out, right? Uh, There's some things that I want you to know, but I can't you can't bear them right now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you. And he'll declare to you the things that are to come. Right? Can you imagine if, if Jesus had said um, all this stuff and then said, John, I need you to come over here. I need you to give you the book of Revelation right now too. Right? Like John may have crippled under the pressure of bearing whatever uh, methods God used to communicate the book of Revelation to him in that moment, if, if he had decided to do it right then. But Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to give you more than what I've just given you, but it's going to come later when you can bear it, right? So as we're going through our own sorrowful circumstances, we need to accept that, that there's delayed answers sometimes that we can't bear right now um, and, and, and trust that, that there's strategy behind the truth that God does communicate to us. Now, we have the advantage of looking back on all this truth that God has communicated, right? Number one, our source for truth is always God's word understood by the Holy Spirit's guidance. So we have a ton of answers that have direct application to the circumstances we go through on a daily basis because we have the completed word of God. And, and Jesus is talking about further revelation to come through the Holy Spirit's empowerment to his disciples here. And he's using this term declare that is a Greek word that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament 
Greek translation, right? So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, right? And so then the Greeks get together and they decide we're going to translate this into Greek. And the word that they use for declare in the book of Isaiah, the, the Greek word that they put there, so that when you're reading the book of Isaiah in Greek and you come across the word declare, it's the same word used here for the Greek translation of the New Testament when it talks about what the Holy Spirit will do, and that's declare things. And if you read in the book of Isaiah, it's used 40 times. And it's always a privilege and right and authority that belongs to God only. In fact, in Isaiah, God even challenges if there's anybody that can declare like he can. Right? So I don't, I don't bring that up to like make you like think higher than you need to. What I want you to know here is that this is a clear indication of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Because the, the words that are being applied to the Holy Spirit here are only applied to God. When God speaks and God declares, specific words are used to say that this comes from God. And Jesus is saying, that's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to declare things that only God can declare. All right? Now, how does he do that? Well, we've already seen that the Holy Spirit, in chapter 14, verse 26, will cause us to remember things, right? The Holy Spirit empowered the apostles to remember their experiences so they could pen the Gospels, right? Jesus is going to leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and then Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and these people are going to start to sit down and try to write all the things that they had experienced. And they're going to, they're going to be frustrated over the fact that they didn't take notes like they should have. Right? And the Holy Spirit's going to draw to remembrance the things that they need to know to write authoritatively about what Jesus said during his ministry. So there's the role of the Holy Spirit drawing to remembrance, and he empowers the apostles to remember supernaturally so they can write the gospels for us. Then the Holy Spirit's going to illuminate the apostles to expand upon prior revelation so they could pen the epistles. Right? So you've got all this progressive revelation happening where God is in, in the Old Testament and then moving into the New Testament, telling us more and more and more and more things about him. And then the Holy Spirit's going to come, and these apostles are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to write even more things, build off of things, provide clarity to things in the Old Testament that we didn't fully understand back in the Old Testament, right? The book of Hebrews, all these shadowy things that now point to Jesus. Holy Spirit helps the, the, the disciples see and understand things that previously they hadn't understood. And now they write them for us so that we, we can rely upon this truth today. So we've got this truth that's been banked for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. All these authors, the Holy Spirit helped them remember things and taught them new things so that it all could be preserved for us. So now what does it look like for us on a daily basis? The Holy Spirit now guides us to understand all of this, to apply it, and to obey it. Look what he says here. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the, Holy, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he speaks or whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Right. So everything that he's even trying to declare is based on the glorification of Christ, right? But look what it says. It says that he will guide us into this truth. The only other time John uses the word guide like this is in Revelation 
chapter 7, verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think about the relevance of that passage to what we're talking about this morning. The Holy Spirit is an extension of Christ, right? He says, I'm leaving, but I'm sending him in my place. And he's going to do all the things that I do. He's going to do them on a, on a bigger, grander, more thorough scale for you because he's going to be with you constantly. And he's going to help, he's going to help make sure that all this truth gets preserved, right? Truth that's not even yet written. So that's going to come. And then all that's going to be preserved. And then he's going to guide you. He's going to guide you into this truth. And what does that guidance look like? Well, it looks very much like what Jesus has already described himself as, as his good shepherd who leads his sheep faithfully, leads them through the valley of the shadow of death, leads them into these springs of living water where he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Man, talk about a beautiful picture of us having a good perspective about sorrow, right? Because he says, look, sorrow is consuming your heart. I want you to see that there's something bigger happening here. The bigger thing happening is that I am guiding you into this deeper truth that is going to cause the sorrow to be vanquished, right? It's going to cause every tear to be wiped away because we're heading towards springs of living water. And it's advantageous that we go this way and that we go in this manner because it's part of his bigger plan. Number two, our provision of truth is always sufficient and our lack of further truth is always purposeful. He had previously delayed giving the disciples certain information about his plan due to his presence with them. Right? He had not provided specific details about his departure or their mission or the hatred that was going to come. But now he does because now it's relevant for them. And we believe that he has communicated all of the authoritative truth that he's going to. Right? That the, the scripture is now closed and it's sufficient for us. And yes, there's, there's questions that are left unanswered. And, and I believe it's strategic. I believe he strategically left those questions in place for us. But he has given us enough answers. He has given us enough truth, enough guidance, so that we don't have to dwell in our sorrow, that we can think bigger, we can ask the right questions, we can think purposefully about why God is carrying us through the things that he's carrying us through. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us to help us have that right perspective. A question that I want us to kind of close with to lead into our application this morning. Because you may be sitting there saying, I don't, I don't feel the advantage of the Holy Spirit over Jesus's presence, right? Do we fail to realize the Holy Spirit's power in our life because we fail to do the types of things that only he can accomplish? Do we fail to realize the Holy Spirit's power in our life because we fail to do the types of things that only he can accomplish? Are we content to, to live a Christian life that doesn't require the Holy Spirit's presence? Are, are we content to, to come here and leave here and come here sometimes and, and, and be minimal participants when we do come? Um, are we content to, to, to love people that are like us um, but, but never really strive to love people who aren't like us? Are we, are we content to come here and to, 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 to talk to people that are like us, to show hospitality to people that are like us? Or, or are we going to rely upon the Holy Spirit to, to help us build relationships with people that aren't like us, right? Are we content to come here and to, to give 
money, if we have some kind of left over at the end of the month? Or are, are we desiring to come here and say, you know what? I don't want treasures to define me. And, and, and I'm going to commit to give to this church, not because this church needs my money, because we don't, right? Um, but instead, I'm going to commit to give so that we can collect that money and do big things together for his kingdom, right? Because we're just going to really, really just going to give it away. Are, are we living our life in such a way that we don't need the Holy Spirit to do, to do uh, supernatural things in our life? Because there's a lot of things that, that, that Christians are supposed to do that you can you can get by with without the Holy Spirit for a long time. You can get by with kind of that minimal, uh, that minimal Christian life for a long time and, 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 and not be dwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's why there's a lot of people in the church that aren't Christians, and Jesus said there would be. Because there's a lot of things that you can do without the Holy Spirit. But when you really start to live in obedience, man, it takes the Holy Spirit to even give you the mindset to want to do that. And then it takes the Holy Spirit to actually give you the ability to carry out that want on a daily basis, right? A couple application questions to give you that kind of flow out of that. Number one, who are the people you will turn to when sorrow strikes and you are struggling to see the advantages in the pruning process? Because me included, the gap is probably still far wider than we want it to be when things hit and when we get around to trusting God like we know we were supposed to. Who are the people in your life? And if you don't, if people don't start coming to your mind immediately, then you really need to take some time this week to kind of ponder this question. Who are the people in your life that when sorrow comes, you can turn to quickly to help give you the right perspective when you're struggling to, to trust it? Because you may get to the point where you're like, I know my perspective is wrong, but I, I'm not ready to embrace the right one. I need some money to admonish me. I need some money to help me with that. I need some, I need some, some reminders. I need some, some support, right? Who are those people that you would turn to, right? I could name you people right now in my life. These are people that I would go to right now. That doesn't take anything on your part, right? So, so it's not that, that if you can't, that I'm better than you, right? It's just that I've thought about it. That's all I'm asking you to do is think about it. Who are the people in your life that you believe typically have good biblical perspective about things that you can turn to and say, hey, I'm going through this. I need you to help me. I need you to help me see this in the, in the right biblical way. Okay? Question number two application was, what are the plans you are setting this week that will require the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit to be effective? What are the plans that you're setting this week that will require the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit to be effective? Let's use the advantage that's been given to us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit is with us constantly. We don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit to get shared back around to us. Right? He's with us all constantly. We don't have to check him out in the, in the church library. Say, I, I need the Holy Spirit this week. Right? You had him last week, I get him this week. Right? He's given to all of us. Right? It's the advantage of Jesus not being here is that he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. What are the plans that you're setting this week that will require the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit to be effective plans? Our family worship questions this week. What are some ways that the Holy Spirit helps Christians on a daily basis? And then when we experience hard times, what are some things we can do to help us see the good that Jesus may be seeking to do?
So what we've seen in this passage today is that Jesus reminds us that when sorrow comes, there's always something advantageous happening in the midst of it. He encourages us to look for how Jesus is at work, and because the Holy Spirit comes, we can trust that the work that Jesus is trying to do will be effective because the Holy Spirit comes to bring about that, that fulfillment of his plan. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you so much that Jesus was sent here for a time and he accomplished great things during his time here. He paved the way so that salvation is now possible for all of us, that he, he lived that perfect life. He, he achieved righteousness that none of us can achieve. He bore your wrath and paid the consequences of our sin. God, we're thankful that Jesus was taken in a physical way from this earth so that the Holy Spirit could come. And we thank you for the advantages that we've seen in your word today for the Holy Spirit being here. We thank you for the conviction that he brings in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment in the lives of unbelievers and in the lives of our our own selves. God, I pray that we would see this this picture here in this passage, the sorrow that the disciples were feeling, and then this bigger plan, this bigger picture that they weren't cued into that that was meant to, to help soothe their sorrow, for them to see that it's not just about them, it's not just about their circumstances, that bigger things were at play, and that ultimately it was advantageous for them. What they felt was sorrowful circumstances. They weren't going to end with sorrow. They were going to end with an advantage. So God, I pray that we would see our own circumstances in that way, that while they may bring natural sorrow to us for a time, God, I pray that we would ask the right questions in the midst of that sorrow and see that there are advantages that come from whatever it is you're bringing us through. And God, help us to seek truth in the midst of those circumstances, truth that you've provided. God, I pray the Holy Spirit would guide us to to see that truth in your word and to rightly apply it in our own life. And and where there's questions that are left unanswered, God, I pray that we would be content with the answers that have been given and that we would trust that, that you're withholding answers because maybe we're just not capable of bearing it right now. Help us as we leave today to continue to ponder these thoughts. Help us to to nail down the people in our life that we hold closest to us that would be the ones to turn to when we know that we're going through sorrow and and not having a good mindset about it. God, help us to make plans this week that that are bigger than ourselves that would require the Holy Spirit to, to make them effective. Give us wisdom in knowing how to do that too. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.